I'm going to keep my word. We're going to go quickly. We won't we get very far. All I want to do is introduce the thought to you so that you'll be thinking about the young men in our church. You'll be thinking about yourself. And you'll help me pray that the Lord will raise up men who fear no one like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, men that will blast against sin like Elijah, John the Baptist, men like the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul and Timothy. Pastoral Combine, the prerequisites and traits. It's a very limited intro due to the time and the venue that we're in tonight, but let's use the minutes that we have. This is Liberty High School freshman football team from a couple years ago. There's about 90 players there. I'm introducing what it means to pick someone out of there that's going to make it to a higher level. You know there's no one in that group that's going to play in the NFL because there's not nearly a big enough statistical sample. There's the University of Michigan football team. And since I'm from Ann Arbor, I get to say that there's no one in there that's going to play at the NFL either. I know that wasn't very respectful. But see, from high school, it, only the cream gets to play collegiate football. From college football, only the cream gets to play in the NFL. The painful facts, there's 1.1 million that play high school football on 40,000 high school teams. Only 60,000 are playing at any one time at the collegiate level. The NFL has 32 teams of 53-man rosters for about 1,700 players. Only one out of 1,250 high school players play in the NFL. It's .08 of 1%. The process of finding those players is done through the college football teams and through what is called a combine. What is a combine? Every April, the NFL holds a combine in which 300 of the best collegiate players are invited to come and perform in front of each other and in front of scouts from all 32 NFL teams. Tens of thousands of players are reduced to only 224 that are picked in seven rounds of the NFL draft every year. For those of you that know anything about the combine, those men show up there and they have to bench press 225 pounds. Some of them can do it in the 50s. 50 repetitions of 225 pounds, many less, 40-yard sprint, vertical jumps, and so forth. There's a Wonderlick written test that I'll send to all of you in the Friday update to see if you're as smart as a, a dumb NFL player, and an interview that takes place, and there's position-specific drills and tests as well. And I'm going through all of this because for every profession, there is a weeding out process to get those that make the cut and there is a weeding out process that the Lord has designed to make the cut to be His ministers. Right. There's a time of proving that the First Peter, First Timothy chapter three describes, and after their time of proving, you know, both bishops and deacons have obtained an office that's given to them by prophecy and by God's mercy upon them, especially bishops. And that's what a combine is. That's just the name of bringing together the best collegiate football players to pick those that will play in the NFL. Now there's a pastoral combine. Only a few men of the population play in the NFL and only a few of God's elect are called to be bishops. And they are found by performance in their lives and performance in the church. Their qualities are their character, their personal character, their conduct, that is their actions, their aptitude. Are they fitted and designed by God to do certain things? What's their attitude toward the things of the Lord? and his church, and what gifts did God give them? This is only a very short intro. 
to this big subject. Why? This past Sunday, the Lord in His providence by expository preaching brought us to the subject. It's a rare event. I hardly ever preach on the ministry. In fact, the last time I preached on the ministry in detail would have been about 1988 in the Epistle of the Hebrews. And in 1986, I preached a topical series of messages called the ministry. So it's been a long, long time. The Lord led us to it. The success of churches depends on faithful bishops. And so we want to be praying because the Lord of the harvest, the Lord Jesus Christ said, pray ye that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest because the fields are white into harvest. And because of the internet, we know that there are sheep out there that are scattered abroad and we want there to be other men to teach them. And we want succession for this church as well. We need more pastors for our future and for others. Like that family, the email of which I read from the Austin, Texas area. And there's profit for all of you by considering this subject. I hope that everyone should care about this. These traits that I'm about to go through are the gold standard ideals for Christians. The position-specific abilities are God's choice alone, so we can't really change that. Either a man is apt to teach or he's not. You really can't take a speech class in a local community college and be given an aptitude for speech. You either have it or you don't. You might be able to hone it a little bit. But a profitable, wise gift of gab, the ability to communicate abstract thoughts and to logically present them in a way that's persuasive, is a gift. But the character and or conduct traits are a choice. So while you look at these things, you can be thinking, is that something that I can improve in my life? And I hope that you will. The Bible plainly exhorts every man in here to earnestly covet the best gifts. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31. The purpose is to think of our young men and to think of yourself in the light of these standards that the Lord's given for His leaders. Young men love to look at the combine results and see who benched 225 pounds how many times, who was the fastest in the 40-yard dash and things like that. They want to see who can throw the football the most accurate in the position-specific drills for quarterbacks. But this is a far more important thing. Far more important. In fact, it shouldn't be compared, but since the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, used athletics in the military for metaphors in the New Testament, I do. I did. But I'm done. Let's go. Ministerial call is by ability. The ignorant think that the call is a desire or a feeling. The call to the ministry is not a desire or a feeling. The greatest men in the Bible didn't have a desire or a feeling for the job. They did not want it. I should say they had a desire and they had a feeling not to do it. Moses did not want to go. Saul of Tarsus didn't want to go. Jeremiah didn't want to go. Amos didn't want to go. But they went because the Lord made them willing. And it was a painful process for Moses to go willingly. God does not care if you want the work or not. So that is not how we measure the call. Now those of us that went to Bob Jones University know that those poor little students there that are pounded nearly daily with the fact that if they're not a preacher boy, that's one of the ministers that Bob Jones produces, then they're a second-rate, second-class Christian, a second-rate, second-class person to some measure. In fact, they have a nickname for everyone that's not in the ministerial class, and that's repro. 
See, Dave was in cinema, so he was a repro. Brother Jeff was an accounting major. He was a repro. Repro is a short nickname for reprobate. Because you're not in full-time Christian service as a minister or a missionary. God, but that isn't the call. Because you heard some great chapel sermon and you came away thinking, I want to be a preacher like Charles Spurgeon, that's not a call to the ministry. That's not taught in the Bible. God told Moses how to identify the call to the, to a job by ability. If you will go read Ezekiel chapter, Exodus, not Ezekiel, Exodus chapters 31, 33, 36, you will find out a man named Bezalel. Because Moses was given this blueprint for the Ark of the Covenant, for all the other furniture of the tabernacle of the Old Testament, and was supposed to make it. And if you've read, if you've read the books of Leviticus and so forth, you know that there is a lot of detail of the things that they were to wear and the furniture and the decorative carvings that were to be on the furniture. Who in the world's going to make all this? Moses didn't have the ability. But there was a man that God had already prepared who was already making things like that in Israel, and his name was Bezalel. And you know the call by the gift given, by the ability given to perform the task that God has at hand. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called Bezalel. You don't have someone come forward at a missionary meeting that says, I've been called to the mission field. Who called you, buddy? The call is the ability. Say, we gotta, we gotta move on. I'm gonna go fast. You know, I'll answer questions about this. This subject, I will answer questions. I'll answer questions about any subject. But this one, if you have serious questions, ask me. If a man has a desire, he then has to have the traits, the ability, the gift from God. In 1 Timothy 3.1, if a man desire the office of a bishop, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be. See, God doesn't really care about the desire. All he says is, if you've got a desire, then you've got to have these abilities and this character and conduct. Are you with me on that? That is what, that is how Timothy was to find faithful men who would be able to teach others also by a list of abilities and performance traits. If a man has a desire, he then has to have the traits or the desire is just a good thing in that he is fulfilling 1 Corinthians 12, 31 because it says to earnestly covet the best gifts. It says that. There is coveting that is good. And there is earnestly coveting that is good. And that is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that isn't enough. God has to have given the gift. If a man has the traits but no desire, he needs to repent. And I told you that little story on Sunday. Now the man who ordained me and the man who was in that dark hotel room that night and turned 2 Corinthians 9-7 on me, he had known for many, many years that I wanted to preach the gospel, but in my timing. Try that on the Lord sometime. Just walk by me and say these two little words. Formaldehyde poisoning. Do you know that when Moses said, I don't have the ability to speak, please send someone else. I don't want to go do this. The book of Exodus said the Lord tried to kill him. When the Lord tries to kill you, it is not a pleasant event. Moses went willingly. 
I was on the floor of a bathroom in a house with my wife feeling my pulse, and I didn't think I would ever have my 26th birthday. Michigan National put me with the best cardiac doctors in southeastern Michigan to find out what was wrong with me, and that's what is involved in the words, very briefly, formaldehyde poisoning. If a man has the traits but no desire, he should repent. If a man has a desire, that is a wonderful and good thing which he ought to have, then he needs to have the traits. Apt to teach. Remember on Sunday there were two main categories to a minister's job? Feed the flock of God which is among you, so it's teaching. Second, take the oversight thereof which is is leading or ruling. There's the scriptural basis, a number of verses that, that explain that a minister has to be able to communicate information. That's teaching. Desire and ability to speak publicly to, and to teach privately. You know, a man of God is going to have that impulse in him and the ability to do it, both the desire and the ability to want to share God's truth in a public way and in a private way. He's going to have the drive and the ability. And I want, you know, every young man in here can be thinking about this, to research, that is the Word of God, to research the Bible, to criticize what other people believe about it, and to organize his thoughts and so that it's in a presentable format. That's teaching, that's research, that's study. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Give thyself holy to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. These are the commandments and the duties and the life work of a man of God. Verbal ability to convey abstract or abstruse matter. That's obscure and difficult subject matter. It's not as simple as take the widget when it comes to you on the conveyor belt, stick it in the hole, pull down the lever, pull it out and put it on the other conveyor belt. That is very specific, concrete, and objective. This is taking abstract concepts like justification, sanctification, and being able to present them in understandable terminology and organizational ability to to lay it out there to where it's like dominoes falling down that brings a person to understand the truth. It's what it's apt to teach. Apt to teach means an aptitude for teaching. That means disposed and provided with the tools by God to be able to communicate information. Lord, give us such men. Logical force that they're able to use by connecting. A, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C and to do it scripturally without diverting or distracting a person in the way that they give their informations in order to convince or persuade them. Enthusiastic presenter to move and motivate hearers is part of teaching. Did you have boring teachers in school that you could, they, you were going to sleep because they were half asleep? And then those that were very excited about their topic and made you excited about it? Instant preaching is what the Bible calls it in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Insistent, pressing, or urgent teaching, preaching. Instant preaching is not being able to jump up with one second's notice and go uh, impromptu. Instant preaching, it was once explained that way, instant preaching is insistent, urgent, pressing preaching because when you're preaching the words, you're, you're seeking to persuade and to convince men. The Apostle Paul said, knowing the, therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's the desire to study before quickly answering questions. Even if you're in a large group of people and someone says, what do you think about this? The aptitude to teach is, I don't have a position on that yet. 
I need to go study it. So see, this is discretion. The man that wants to open his mouth, the book of Proverbs doesn't have good things to say about him that just wants to spew out what's on the top of his mind when he's asked a question. But most men that don't have the aptitude to teach think that respect is generated by quickly giving an answer to any question. Wrong. That's how we get ten promises instead of ten commandments out of New Springs, Pastor. It's the love of reading other opinions to get the full picture. It's reading commentaries and taking up why they hold an erroneous position so that you can see the weakness in it because you're going to have to defend the faith against someone that believes that position. Remember, it takes a little bit of knowledge to believe something, more knowledge to teach it, but a whole lot of knowledge to defend a subject. Aptitude to teach means he wants answers for all questions and he will find them. He is not content saying, I just don't know. He wants to go find answers to questions. Creative and original in format or style to keep interest. You know, subjects can be preached at different times in different ways. Like I try to preach brotherly love in this church. I've promised you once a quarter, you're going to get it one way or another. And you do get it one way or another. And you need to have that kind of creativity. This, this study, though, is not about me. It's about our young men and it's about the bar that God has set in the Bible. We want to be dramatic without being melodramatic or irritating. Because the Bible is a dramatic book. Jesus on the cross is dramatic. It's very dramatic. Go read Psalm 22 and and see if you don't feel or see or understand the drama unfolding there. But we don't want to be overly dramatic. And we don't want to be irritating by pretending we're something that we're not. What I mean by that is when Jonathan Crosby tries to be a sanguine. Irritating. The aptitude to teach is contentment with with didactically presenting truth over and over again. Didactically is just point upon point, and the Bible describes it as precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That is how the Scriptures are to be taught. It is not entertainment. It is Line upon line, line upon line. That's not my repetition, that's the Holy Ghost. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept. Do you know why? Because that's how you teach little children information is by lots of repetition, and that's what drives other people away because they can't stand that kind of a boring service. And it says that, it's Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 through 13. Apt to teach means you're not frustrated or irritated by legitimate questions. You want to help people understand. So if you've, if, if questions are asked, you want to answer them. This man does all he can to make things as plain as possible. That's apt to teach. That's feeding the flock of God, which is among you. He then needs to take the oversight thereof and rule well. There are some verses referring to his leadership role in the church. He needs to rule his own family well, for it is like the job. Taking care of a family is so much like taking care of the church. You have a wife that's 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 nearly a peer. You have children that are older, children that are younger, children that are more gifted, children that are less gifted. And if you can rule your own family well, they've all got sin natures. A church is very much like children. The Apostle Paul called churches children, sometimes in favorable ways, affectionate ways, and sometimes in uh, critical ways, that they were babes. He must take charge and lead both his wife and children. These are good things. Every man in here should want to do this. Every man should want to achieve this gold standard. However, he needs to show wisdom to motivate both. Not only does he take charge and lead them, 
He cannot discourage them. He needs to love his wife without bitterness, Colossians 3.19. He needs to bring his children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord without discouraging them, Ephesians 6.4, Colossians 3.21. He needs to be inquisitive and know how to gain hearts by listening and exploring and imploring people to open up to him. This is ruling well. It's being a good father. Sitting down and extracting from your children as much as you can gain from them. He cannot be intimidated at all by his wife or children. At all. There are men that are intimidated by their wives that you might not otherwise think so. Because the little hissy fits that they throw. The man of God cannot be moved by his wife or children. Because he's going to receive worse opposition than that in the pulpit. And out of the pulpit as a pastor. He must deal with any disobedience by revenging it. That means when he's holding his family accountable for obedience and they sin, then he punishes them justly, fairly, but he judges disobedience. Relationship skills are incredibly crucial to leadership and being a pastor. You know, different people, different folks get different strokes and you just learn that and it's not, I'm not trying to be funny with that little statement. It's the wisdom of getting along with people. And so we want to be looking for young men in our church that get along with older ones, get along with their peer group, get along with younger ones. And let's pray for that and let's look for it. Let's cultivate it. He must shut up and learn that listening is more useful than talking many times in ruling well. Because you need to find out where those under your authority are and what they're thinking and what's what their problems are and what's distracting them, what's hurting them. He assumes little because assumptions are dangerous. He suspects most and he loves charity. That'll cover both of those. And he can survive. Ruling well, it is not a perfect wife or children. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that you've got to have a perfect wife and perfect children. But how the man of God responds to them. He doesn't allow there to be existing, outstanding situations of rebellion by either wife or children. His, his children are not accused of riot or unruly, of not having been dealt with and corrected. He does not assume lackability about himself. He knows that, to, that for a man to have friends, he must show himself friendly so he wins friends. He does not measure himself by thinking that he's likable. That's what every odious person does. He learns graciousness by measuring his real friends, and he wins them. He willingly alters personal traits to avoid distraction to the preaching of the gospel. He's patient, merciful, gentle, and meek. Even though this is under ruling well, you know, we have had members in this church that you, that many of you have come to me and said, why are they still here? Because we're going to err on the side of mercy and patience and gentleness and long-suffering because God does with me, God does with you, and I want Him to continue to do so with me and with you. And so we show that. And it has never cost our church. And we do not let it cost His glory. But we're patient, merciful, gentle, and meek to, till it's nearly a fault. He will not fight until He's forced to fight because He hates fighting. But when He fights... He's going to win. That's the man of God. That's ruling well. That's being a good father and a good husband. Faithful wife. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11 says that deacons must be the husbands of a faithful wife. Faithful in all things. Sober, grave. And because it says it's of deacons and the office of bishop is more important than the office of deacon, we know that it applies to the bishops as well. And because it says the word also in comparing the two, seven and six verse descriptions of those two offices. 
a faithful wife in all things. A pastor's wife must be a first-class example of virtue. So men, marry well. Young men, marry well. Marry well. Marry as high as you possibly can and train her before and after you marry her. Every time you get together, what else is there to talk about that is more important than talking about spiritual, scriptural virtue and the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and righteousness and the kingdom of heaven? Those are the greatest subjects to talk about. Get her trained. Compromise here has hurt so many pastors or worse and the stories that I could unload on you right now about a little yapper that's the pastor's wife in a church that's doing a little bit of false accusations and a little bit of slandering behind the scenes. Unbelievable what it does. It doesn't matter how good her husband is in the pulpit. It doesn't matter how good his life is and how good his preaching is. She can undermine and ruin him in churches. She can split churches. A 10% odious wife is a 100% rejection of the man. Faithful is defined by God's Word, not anyone else. It doesn't matter if you think your wife is faithful or she thinks she's faithful. What does the Word of God have to say about it? Her speech, her house, her diligence, friends, reputation, all the things that we've taught before about a great woman need to be met. Workaholic tendencies. Paul outworked all the apostles and everyone else also, didn't he? Day and night, laboring. Workaholic tendencies. I'll tell you, why do we call it a non-profit profession when I was in the bank? Because most ministers treat it like a non-profit profession and they don't work very hard. Ministers ought to outwork the majority of their congregation for a number of reasons, but this it's a high calling. The house of Stephanus addicted themselves to work in 1 Corinthians 16.15. Timothy was to endure hardness in the work. It's not a take-it-easy job. The calling is too great. The goals are too important. It is not the non-profit profession. The cause is great, so ministers should work hardest. I'm done. That's 25 minutes already. Uh, I think we've made it through 13 slides out of 35. I could go from now until 10 o'clock, but I've promised you there's school tomorrow, and I understand your situations. You young men, you older men that care about this subject, the whole church, you may look at the slides and you may call me, email me. I don't take text yet. You can text my wife. Uh, it's a wonderful subject, and we want to close right now with a prayer and beg God to raise up some men that Jesus Christ is truly gifted with His gift. According to the prophecy that we read on Sunday and, and alluded to on Sunday and some that we've alluded to tonight. Please stand with me.